Hey, y'all, it's Monica. Welcome back to my conversation with Daniel from Based New World. I do love talking to people who I met or connected with through the show, and Daniel is one of those people. He came to our Zoom parties. He's talked to me offline a lot about crypto and different, you know, what it means, what it's about. He doesn't have an agenda. He explains things very clearly. So I was very excited when he wanted to talk about the Silicon Valley Bank and its connection to crypto. We talked about some of the parallels with FTX, the central bank digital currency, just a lot of stuff that goes along with this story. And it's a very fishy story. And there is no doubt in my mind that this whole chapter culminating in the Credit Suisse bailout, which I feel like we were being prepared for somehow. But I feel like this is a chapter in a bigger book. So I don't think this is the last conversation I'll have with Daniel, but this is the second part of the conversation we already had. If you didn't hear part one, just go back in the feed. It's in Deep Dives with Monica Perez. And if you did, well, just keep listening. Kofefe. So the major point I was trying to make is this one character, Jim Brer, which, you know, was a major player in launching Facebook besides Mark Zuckerberg, is basically where creation of the two largest stable coins and the WeChat app, which dominates Asia for transactions, so has a huge amount of, you know, influence over the world's transactions in one person's hands. Especially if, you know, we have problems with our dollar or our SWIFT system that people like Russia are leaving. A lot of people are complaining about SWIFT as not being, you know, efficient enough. And that's what's bringing the calls for CBDCs, a central, you know, a central bank digital currency. Yes. Yes. Okay. We got to bring this in. Yeah. So a lot of people, when they are, you know, there's been a lot of talk about CBDCs lately, and most people are imagining a, you know, the Fed, basically, instead of printing money or increasing its balance sheet and printing money to buy stuff with it to send money into circulation, they, they'll just take complete control of the money and get rid of the banks and have essential bank digital currency that they have ultimate control of the supply, they could freeze it in people's accounts. Uh, the people at the World Economic Forum have talked about how great it would be because they could put, uh, you know, a tax on it that would make it worth less and less every day that you don't spend it. So they could stimulate people to go out shopping and stuff like that. Just complete control over it. People imagine this going to the Fed, which is a good possibility. I'm not saying that's not possible, but I think another possibility that a lot of people aren't talking about is maybe the they let private companies do it. You know, they are going to get a lot of backlash from the right. The, you know, Fox News is already bashing CBDCs and stuff like that. So they're going to get a big outcry from the right about this much centralized power going to, you know, uh, the Fed. So, well, what if they allow private institutions to do it? Something like Circle or Tether that are already doing it, which the they already have influence over those. They can tell them to freeze funds whenever they want to, and they could tell them to program whatever changes they want into the cooks. They could Tether and uh, Circle could change the code for their stable coins anytime they want, and they do all the time. They could change it to anything, and they already have a centralized control over that. So they could do this just by promoting the use of stable coins and digital assets and stuff like that without actually having to go and pass a law uh, forcing people to switch over to CBDCs. They could just, uh, you know, uh, give people, incentivize people to use stable coins, even if they're not doing it directly, and even if they got people like Elizabeth Warren screeching against it that, you know, how terrible is and stuff. How are they promoting this exactly? Like, I, oh, I'm not necessarily saying they're promoting it, but they certainly haven't stopped it yet. When they No, oh, definitely. The There's something, I mean, definitely. Same thing with Uber. I was, I was like, you can stop, you stop gypsy cams in New York all the time. Like, just call them yeah. and ar- charge them $1,000 like they were doing with, with um, gypsy cams. There's just absolutely no way. Like, some people were shut down when they were due, when Tether was invented and some and they and Tether was not. So obviously it's being allowed and they continue with all this dispute or whatever, but they continue to roll out banks facilitating investment in and transactions in in crypto. Big banks don't do stuff like that unless they know it's coming. I mean, it's it's coming. It's not. They're not stopping it. They're definitely preparing to regulate it and all of that. Uh, yes, but I just wonder. I guess I. I guess I just don't have a hundred percent grasp on the stablecoin thing. They, 
would they even have to promote it directly? Are you saying people can use whatever crypto they want and that perforce encourages stablecoin because stablecoin is behind a lot of that? And it would well, be just Heather now, basically. Well, either one. Yeah, if you, the more you know, people buy Bitcoin, they're generally using Tether to buy it. You know, so at least going through there as an intermediary. But in a lot of countries, a lot of third world countries, they're just buying and selling goods in Tether because it's dirt cheap to to send and stuff like that <sighs> and to use, and it holds its peg. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Monero and the other ones are so volatile; it's almost impossible to use them as a currency for a business to make plans. Absolutely. And, uh, and expensive transaction fees sometimes pop up. Yeah, yeah. For Bitcoin, it can be expensive. Bitcoin. Other ones are so, cheaper, but it's just too volatile to use as a currency at the moment. JC wanted to know your opinion on proof of work privacy coins like Monero and Pirate Change and Dero. Dero? Dero, yeah. Dero. I yeah, mean, I'm a fan of proof. I know you like oh, go ahead. Pirate. Look at that. That's oh yeah, thing. I'm definitely a fan of. Uh, I I think proof of work is. I mean, I don't want to say superior. I want to say different. I think proof of work is uh, more secure and more decentralized than proof of stake, and I think it's objectively more decentralized than uh, proof of stake. And I. So I don't know if you, the difference between proof of work and proof a proof of work coin is like Bitcoin, where anybody can go and buy mining equipment or computer modify a computer. <laughs> to mine Bitcoin, to basically contribute to the network, solving the algorithm, creating new Bitcoins. Anybody can go grab a computer and do that. With proof of stake, what happens is everybody who owns the coin, uh, well, there's different versions of proof of stake, but for the most part, anybody who owns a coin goes and does what's called staking their coin with what is yeah. called a validator. A validator is a miner. They're basically the same thing. It's just with proof of work, anyone could go and be a miner. With proof of stake, whoever gets the most staked coins or the most votes, basically, you get to vote on who you think should be the validator. Whoever gets the most votes gets to validate the transactions and gets the reward for doing so. They get part of the reward and the other part goes to the people who are staking the coins. That's why they call it staking. You stake it with somebody and you earn interest on it, which are the new coins coming into circulation. So, uh, but I think that's a centralizing control because somebody can just go up and buy millions of dollars worth of the coin, go and stake it with themselves, and then become the only person. You're not the only person. They usually have hundreds or thousands of validators, but one of the people that get to do it, it makes it incredibly easy. There is a centralizing way that somebody could go and buy a significant stake in it and get majority control over it. With proof of work, you can't just stake the coins you've bought and keep control influence over the network. With proof of work, you have to continue to contribute to the network every day. That's why they call it proof of work. You still have to contribute your knowledge in running a mining farm and your and uh, maintain your equipment and use up all the energy every single day to get the network going to but, earn your reward. And that's why? why I think it's more decentralized. But that, that just seems like such an arbitrary thing, so wasteful. It's work that does nothing. Like, I remember Bill Gates got a patent on something like that. He has his own coin that's just, you know, work. I, I read about that, but I don't understand it at all. And it just seems like it's just work for work's sake. Isn't that weird? Well, I mean, I get what you're saying because there's nothing physically being created in the world or anything like that. But that is what maintains the, that's what is the Bitcoin network, you know, that's each... I, Every 10 minutes, yeah. a new block is created. Yeah. In it. And uh, also, it doesn't necessarily have to... Bitcoins and other proof-of-work coins are moving towards more like renewable energy sources and energy sources that have been wasted otherwise. Like here south of where I live, here in New Mexico, they have we have oil and gas fields everywhere. And south of me, they have this huge Bitcoin mining farm where they are using the gas that they would normally burn off when they have too much oh, gas. Oh yeah, flaring gas. That is so insane. Yeah. and they actually God, I can't they just made it illegal. It. They made it illegal here in New Mexico, so they can't uh, uh, do that anymore. They have to find something to do with it. So they buy a bunch of gas generators and set up a mining farm out there. And if you know they don't have any extra gas, they just turn off the turn off the miners, and it's not a problem. So I see, like, I do get the waste of energy and stuff like that, but there are, it's moving towards, you know, 
uh, solutions like that and like uh, hydro plants that have wasted energy, they just use it. So the thing you can do with Bitcoin is just put it all these places where you have wasted energy, we can't do anything with or have batteries to store and then use it to maintain this network. Okay, well, I will say this, that it seems to me this concept, so Bitcoin, there's what, 80 million or something? Ultimately, how many? Uh, how many will there will be? 21, 21 million. Twenty one million. Okay, be. so here's the here's the thing that I've always said about gold. Like, there's a few things that I think are absolutely gifts directly from God to mankind. Weed, oil, and gold are at least three of them. There's a fourth one I can't remember. But so with gold, why it's so genius in my opinion is it has so many qualities that make it. It's soft. It's immutable. I guess. Um, it's it it has this really unusual quality, unique, I would say, in that there's a stone called a touchstone that if you rub gold against, you will it can validate that it's real gold. It can verify real gold. So it made it all of a sudden really hard to counterfeit when gold was used as coin. And there's there's the thing with gold is the more there's still gold in the ground. And the reason there's still gold in the ground is that it it wasn't valuable enough to extract it. Whereas if you have a shortage of gold or you needed more money or whatever, it would be worth more to extract it. So you would use more expensive extraction techniques and that's how it works. So for me, that felt like gold, gold has the supply that is needed in a world based on you know productivity and actual production. And it's just interesting because that is something cool about gold. And I would be surprised if that isn't what inspired the Bitcoin system. Oh, definitely. If you read Satoshi's, right, like we have lots of stuff, uh, writings from Satoshi in his old Bitcoin talk forums and stuff like that and emails between a lot of people. And yeah, he was heavily inspired by gold and, and, uh, and, uh, and Austrian economy. He quotes Hayek and oh, several no other economists. Oh yeah, Satoshi. Yeah, he quoted Hayek. He, they, whoever it was, he he quoted Hayek and several other people. I don't think he quoted Rothbard, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But don't yeah, you he think... quoted several. He was very much an Austrian economist. But isn't crypt crypto like a plot? You know, a gateway to a cashless society, stepping stones to the cashless society. I don't know. It might be. <laughs> I know I'm not trying ago. to. <laughs> I'm not trying to de- deflate you because I do think it works. I mean, it works well. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. no, you know, it's it's not bad. Bad that the Rolling Stones are probably an inside oh. job, and it wouldn't work if they weren't yeah. good. Well, I'm not one of these like super Bitcoin maximalists that think yeah. you know talk about Bitcoin like it's a religion or something like that. And I think it's really negative to do so. These people like Michael Saylor and stuff that are turning it into a cult. But it's a really cool, it's a really cool tool, and it's a competition for the dollar on digital parents. It's a really cool experiment, I should say. But I'm not one of these people who are saying, "Oh, it's gonna, you know, Bitcoin's inevitable. It's gonna be worth a million dollars someday." It's definitely not inevitable. We saw lots of work to it, and it's not. There's just so much more to it than I understood back when I first got into it. Like it's not just inherently decentralized. I guess it's decentralized right now, but it doesn't always have to be oh, that really? way. Like, well, well, yeah, it's just computer code, you know, and people who, uh, you know, people whoever say, is running some people the say it's impossible to ever change that. And you're saying it isn't. Oh, no, to change. Oh, no, they could change the amount of Bitcoin. And I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to happen. And it would be really difficult to, but the way Bitcoin, because Bitcoin gets updated regularly. It's not just a software that came out, you know, in 2008 and nothing ever changes with it. It can't be because computers you know, computers upgrade every year. If it was a software that just came out and never had to be upgraded, then we'd all have to use computers from 2008 to run it, you know, but it needs to be updated. So there's a group called uh, Bitcoin Core. They've been around since the beginning and they write the majority of the code for Bitcoin and do the updates on it. They do small updates regularly that are, uh, you know, uh, just co- bug fixes or updating it for newer devices and stuff like that. But then every once in a while, they do really big updates called hard forks, where it basically changes something significant about the protocol. And there's no one saying that this company has to do that, or that when they come out with a new code that the miners have to run it. Because basically, they come out with a new code and say, here, we fix this, this, and this. All the miners go and look at it, and they look at it and make sure it all checks out. Then the miners choose to run it. And if they don't choose to run it, they could just keep running the old one 
and it would uh, you know continue that way and someone else could write some someone else could write some software and for anyone could write software and present it to do this but most people follow what bitcoin core does and it it hasn't always been that way there was this was a big the block size war in 2017 when bitcoin cash forked away from bitcoin uh this was a big this was a big it was a huge it was one of the biggest things in crypto history is this argument it was basically crypt uh bitcoin core wanted to make this update to bitcoin that the half of the community didn't agree with and the other half never came they never came to an agreement basically it was over the block size how big how many transactions in every single block and they never could come to a settlement so the chain basically forked the uh, update was made or actually technically bitcoin cash made an uh, upgrade for they to bitcoin cash made an upgrade a different upgrade than uh bitcoin core was putting out and but the people who are on bitcoin core side used their software and so it split off into two separate chains and so that's what Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin are. They spl uh, a split it's a of the schism same thing. in Bitcoin? Oh, yeah. And that's not the only time it's split off. There's like uh, there's several fantastic. Bitcoin. Then there's Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, uh, Bitcoin Gold, uh, eCash, e which is one Vin Armani is associated with now. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, those are all Bitcoin forks that, you know, these were people who said, we don't like what Bitcoin Core is doing. So we're going to either continue running the old one or we're going to make some changes of our own. How so does, no, this has been a huge big How schism. does that change the number 21 million? Well, it doesn't on a, the Bitcoin blockchain. But yeah, when you fork the chain, if you hold Bitcoin, like when Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin forked, when you if you were holding them during that time, you got a copy of each coin. So if you had 10 Bitcoin, when uh, Bitcoin Cash forked, you had 10 Bitcoin Cash waiting for you. <laughs> Which a lot of people don't understand when you say, oh, and the number 21 million can never be Wait, increased or whatever. It's say like, that well, again it can't now? be increased, but it can be copied. If you held 10 Bitcoin on the day of the Bitcoin cash right. fork, you would still have your 10 Bitcoin yeah. on that Bitcoin blockchain, but you would have a uh, 10 of the new chain Bitcoin cash on the new chain. So every single person who owned Bitcoin on that day doubled their holdings. They had a Bitcoin then and they had Bitcoin cash if they chose to pursue it. Yes, but Bitcoin Cash wasn't worth near as much as Bitcoin, so it wasn't like double their money. But yeah, it was basically like free money. Right, so they the somebody created Bitcoin Cash, and somehow it included every bit of information about existing Bitcoin to that moment, and it reproduced yes, that. They, they, they share a blockchain up to a certain point. It's like a river that forked off. Oh, so all right. This is where yeah. I no longer understand it. <laughs> yeah, so they have I a don't copy. They basically just made a. You not understand the blockchain. Take, <laughs> you could take a copy of Bitcoin. You could just copy the code for Bitcoin, change a couple numbers of it on it, and then relaunch it again and call it whatever you want, and uh, it would be exactly like Bitcoin. Like well, technically, on that one Bitcoin blockchain that everybody recognizes as the Bitcoin blockchain, you can't create more on there, but you can make a copy of it. And launch it and have as you know, which is what they've done, which a lot of people don't understand when they first get oh, into Bitcoin. I understand yeah. now. And the reason Bitcoin BTC Bitcoin is the real Bitcoin is because the majority of people who are in crypto say it is, basically. Okay, so I'm just Bitcoin, gonna I, I have oh, go to ahead. I have to read you the first sentence off of the wiki article for blockchain and it explains it. A blockchain is a distributed ledger with growing lists of records or blocks that are securely linked together via cryptographic hashes. Each block contains a cryptographic hash of the previous block, a timestamp and transaction data generally represented as a Merkle tree where data nodes are represented by leaves. The timestamp proves that the transaction data existed when the block was created. Since each block contains information about the previous block, they effectively form a chain with each additional block linking to the ones before it. So you're saying when they went to Bitcoin Cash, they took up until... So everybody who had Bitcoin at that moment, like what are... So you have Bitcoin, you have one Bitcoin and I have one Bitcoin. If we put our... we Can you look at the number that your Bitcoin is? Like you, you own a specific one, right? Uh, yes. Okay, so yeah. you own one it's and I own one. And if we... And can you look at the chain, what it looks like? The numbers and letters in your chain 
yeah, yeah. If you have your wallet address, you just go put in a block explorer, just like Google, and enter it. Uh, just hit enter, and it'll bring okay. up all the transaction history of that one. So, what's the difference between yours and mine? Like when you put those numbers together, the, the those little that identifier together. The first couple are the first couple of the first the first integer is for sure identical, right? That's a Satoshi uh, wrote that, right? The first yeah. one for or not. Or a new one is created in the first, like if I had, if you had the first Bitcoin ever created and I had the the most recent one mined, would our numbers share anything together? Um, well, technically they're supposed to be fungible. So there should be, you know, one is the same as another. And the blockchain is constantly keeping track where every Bitcoin is at any given moment. So you can't like create a fake one and put it in there because that would make you put an extra Bitcoin in there, that'd make 21 and 1 yeah. million, 21 million and 1 Bitcoin and the blockchain wouldn't know where to put it. Because you really don't have, when you have Bitcoin in a wallet, you don't have the Bitcoin. It's on a blockchain. You have the keys to that Bitcoin on the blockchain, basically. Right. And so the blockchain knows where every coin is at every time. So, but what makes them, does make them individual is the transaction history. Since you can look up the transaction history of them all, you can see where one went and one where one didn't. And that's why certain Bitcoins get flagged by exchanges and stuff like that. Like if you steal some Bitcoin in a hack. Oh my gosh. Or if you buy some. It... That's the oh, opposite yeah, of anonymous. Could... Oh yeah, exactly. And this is what. Uh, Cash is so much like, better. Was... <laughs> and so is gold. Oh, that's why I was so naive <laughs> in the beginning back back when we used to say Bitcoin is anonymous because it's kind of yeah. the opposite of anonymous. Right. It's as anonymous as Twitter is, you know. Yes. But once you can link an email to Twitter, then you know who it is. Or you can link an IP address to Twitter, you know who it is. Most people are buying their. Bitcoin from an exchange where they give them their ID and information like that. So once you buy it from there, then it's very easy for any novice just to watch where it goes at any time. And they I've, blacklist Bitcoin. And I've, their Bitcoin, get this, Bitcoin that has been seized by the government uh, sells at a premium at, as opposed to Bitcoin on the open market. Because it's it been baptized later. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's gotten validated. a stamp of approval. Yes, but got the stamp of approval from the federal government. Okay, this is coming straight from us. It's good Bitcoin. It hasn't been used in a crime. Wow. It hasn't been got from North to Korea. So it sells at a premium, and it's mostly that's when the institutions that buy Bitcoin, a lot of them pay a premium to get it through the government as opposed to... I've always thought that was a funny anecdote that that's Bitcoin sells really at a premium funny. When, when the government approves of it. Yeah. This is why me and so many other people have gotten to privacy chains as we learn more about Bitcoin and the Monero and pirate chain. And just an FYI, I'm heavily involved and in, I've been heavily involved with Monero in the past and I am very heavily involved with uh, Pirate Chain today. And I consider, you know, the developers and team members of Pirate Chain, I consider them my friends and stuff. So I am honestly biased towards it. But that's why I like Bitcoin and Monero and stuff. It has all the aspects of Bitcoin, except you can't go and just type someone's address in and see their entire transaction history. The owner of the wallet, you could, if you own some Monero, or pirate chain, you could go look at your transactions by unlocking it with your, you know, keys. You can look at your transactions to provide them to tax collectors or something like that. Uh, or you can keep them private and uh, nobody else can look at them. And they have, uh, pirate chain especially has very, very hardcore encryption, ZK Starks encryption. It's the most private currency in the world, in my opinion. And it's more like cash and it's more fungible because you can't flag a pirate chain. You can't flag a Monero. So you... that's why. So you oh, like your little logo there is pirate. Are you yeah. involved? Like I said I hi to them at Freedom Fest. I was like, Daniel said told me to say hi. They have a little booth. Oh yeah. Freedom oh Fest. well, I mean, but what, like what does that mean? Why do you have that? Why do you have that? Oh, just because I saw you could put a picture there while I was waiting for you, and, and you, there's one of the few pictures I had saved on my computer. You so like it? It's not. Chain. It's not that you make oh, yeah. money. You you don't get it. Are you in business? No, no. For I've never thing? I've never been paid by them. Right. Okay. I've just done like marketing work. Like market it. You don't have to ask to do it. Anybody can start marketing Pirate Chain and anybody can go write articles on it and stuff. I'm just go to their meetings every week and listening to their and listen to their developer meetings and why I pay I donated to the you know, when we were trying to raise money to, for our code to be audited, I donated to that because it's super expensive and stuff like that. Why? Why do you care? Because uh Pirate Chain is everything I thought Bitcoin was when I got involved with Bitcoin. And, and I you, think privacy is yeah. more important than ever. And you want it to exist? You want to use it? Like, what? Why is yes, it something I, that engages you? Yes, I want people to use Pyrochain and Monero as cash. I want them to make purchases with it, which I know it's really difficult right now because it's so volatile. That's the only way we're going to get it to stop being volatile is 
right now the primary use of cryptocurrencies is speculation that's where the vast majority of volume comes from is speculation we are never going to balance out you know make it less volatile if we don't isn't used for something is if it's not used for investments if it's not used for long-term plans and stuff like that in the beginning on how we start that how we make that happen is by using it for our small purchases like and there are loads of play pirates quite a bit smaller than monero but we still have we have a whole uh tons of merchants that accept stuff my t-shirts coffee all kinds of stuff but monero especially is accepted all over the place and it so just, i've heard some criticism really of monero what what criticism have i heard of monero uh well it's nowhere it's not as private as pirate chain it has an anonymity set of 18 which means a simplified way of saying that it's mixed up with 18 other transactions yours is whereas pirate chain has an anonymity set of over a million so it's if you're listening to pirate chain guys they might you know bash monero a little bit and say pirate so much <laughs> you know more which it technically is but monero also has the network effect they're accepted more places and they are private and the other big thing is this company called, uh, what are they called? Chain and out, chain analysis. They're a block, a company that does blockchain analysis and they work, you know, with private companies, but they also work with governments and stuff like that. And a presentation they gave to the Italian, uh, FBI, basically, I don't know what they're, they're called there, but the Italian tel uh, law enforcement there, they, a, a presentation they gave got leaked. And in that presentation, they were claiming that they could, uh, crack Monero transactions with up up to like 60%. They could, uh, up to 60% of Monero transactions, they could trace to an identity basically and with 90% confidence. Does that make sense? Yeah. But they have never proven they could do this. They've never like posted code showing how they do this or anything, but they have made that claim and it was leaked. A lot of people say it was leaked on purpose and stuff like that to undermine Monero. But it's... I don't know. I still haven't seen proof Monero's been broken or anything like that. But Monero's accepted everywhere. Even if it's not private to the government, it's not at least it's private to everyone else. You know, me and you can't go see the Monero transactions, which makes it far superior to then to using Bitcoin. I'm not trying to hate on Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin, but I just think Monero well, and Power Chain are the next step in it. Let's answer JC's question. Right. Would it be realistic for Bitcoin to be reformed at this point or is it a lost cause? I don't know. I wouldn't call it a lost cause. I'm still a lot of people. If you listen to people in Bitcoin Cash community and such, which there are lots of people in our circles that are hardcore Bitcoin Cash supporters, you know, like Sal Mayweather and stuff like that, and uh, they would say it's a lost cause and that it's been you know hijacked by the establishment and stuff like it, that. First, that makes it the one thing that's going to last. Like this, I and my I would say my instinct tells me, and I've always felt this way. That Bitcoin was a stepping stone to a cashless society. And when you see that some people will can trace it to say it really was a Rothschild project, or, you know, Satoshi was a Rothschild or whatever. Like yeah. there there are definitely some some unanswered questions when it goes back. So I assume that Bitcoin is the one that's going to last. And that in its that either makes it like not make it inevitable or a lost cause at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it, it, exactly. What's the like, point it might of crypto? be a great finance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What's the point of crypto if they're, you know, KYCing us all using it and you can watch every transaction right. on the blockchain and be easily tracked and stuff? All right. So, yeah, it might, like, I don't know. I haven't given up faith on Bitcoin. There's lots of people. But the one thing that turns me, like, makes me question that is, like, there's lots of people involved in Bitcoin that are really, really smart guys that are very, very genuine. And yes. most of them are like libertarians and anarchists and stuff like yeah. that with us. But like most of the code is coming out of Bitcoin Core, which Bitcoin Core is just five developers. And most people just accept the code from Bitcoin Core and update their miners to run it just with no questions asked, basically. So, and then there's this whole new drama with these things called ordinals, which are basically NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the big debate in Bitcoin right now. It's increased. It's, it's, I'd have to get kind of technical to explain that, but I'm not a fan of those. But I'm still could keep hope up for Bitcoin, but I just think Monero and Pirate Chain are just far more superior. It's closer to cash, digital cash, you know? Okay, I have a couple of things. So, A, I would say I do agree with you about the Bitcoin people. Probably everybody I've run into really personally, maybe a few like bigwigs, whatever, not, but... Mostly they do totally believe in it and they're smart, way smarter than I am, really understand it. 
And but there's also this underlying element that is that is just true and influences that. And it's the speculation arm of it. It really is primarily speculative still. And and it's easy to be true believer when you have actually seen this thing, you know, make 10,000 times is what you put into it. It's a little hard to separate that out, I think. And I've got a few more things, but you can react to that if you want. That's why most people are involved in crypto. Most people are involved in crypto because they want to make a bunch of money because there's no other asset they could see that will give them 20x their investment, you know, in a short period of time. But, you know, that has happened in the past with crypto and they think it'll happen again in the future, whether it will or who knows, it could keep going up forever. I don't know. Yeah. But okay. the, that's what it, most people are involved with it for. They're not involved with it for digital cash. And they've, a lot of people just accept Bitcoin as this great thing and it's always going to be like it is now. But I, my argument is that we need to be more vigilant. They say Bitcoin's inevitable. Bitcoin's perfect. You know, Bitcoin solves all of our problems. And my answer to that is like it has potential to do a lot of that stuff. But it's not something we can just forget about. We st- got to stay up on participating in it, on paying attention to what they're doing to the code, you know, because it's only five people in there writing the majority of code for Bitcoin right now. And if those people are compromised or are just stupid or whatever, they could really mess it up. And so, in my opinion, it's not just something that we just need to buy it and sit back and wait for the world to change in front of us. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's the kind of thing we need to, first of all, use when it's possible for us, when we can afford it, and go and use Bitcoin to make purchases to and uh, actually and accept it for your business. And then also pay attention to what they're doing in the code and make sure it stays to the original ethos of Bitcoin. Because obviously we've seen with all the arguments that people disagree what the ethos of Bitcoin is too. You know, that's the other thing. Like it's being, this is a decentralized project and that's a really confusing thing that people haven't really done before. Decentralized money and how we handle updating the code, how we handle spending it and merchants that accept it and stuff like that. This is all new stuff that's never been done before, you know, and we need to, it's not just inevitable that it's all going to work out and it's going to replace the dollar. We might just turn into, like you said, a, it is uh, the CBDC to, platform. Yeah. Get us using digital. That's you know, what I wonder. Get you using digital assets. Buy your Bitcoin and hold it. It's digital gold. Don't use it. Don't buy stuff with it. Hold it. Or what you and said. Then use your. The tether will be the CBDC without actually yeah. having to do it. Now I want to. I have a few more things. So Stella said, "Can you use this stuff on eBay, Amazon, etc.? Can you do on any of those huge, huge platforms use crypto yet?" Uh. Not on either of those. Overstock.com right. accepts it. Oh, that's nice. There's yeah. a few others. When and, I, people want to start getting into actually using their crypto, my first suggestion is pay with your for your VPN with Monero. Because first of all, everybody should have a VPN, even if you're not trying to change where your IP is coming from. A VPN encrypts your network traffic, so you should be using one regardless. And the best VPN out there, in my opinion, is called Molvad VPN because they accept Monero. You don't give them your name, you don't give them your phone number, you don't give them your email address. You get a account number basically and when you and uh, you pay with Monero. So they don't know where it's coming from. If you pay with Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash, which are the other two things they accept, it can be traced back to, you know, your exchange or whatever. But it's to be honest, it's kind of dumb to buy a VPN with a credit card. You know? <laughs> yes, totally. So, yes. Unless you're I just agree. trying to watch Netflix from Canada or something like that. But there's this great <laughs> right. VPN it gets super high speeds, encrypts your network, has lots of different options for the type, you know, types of tunneling and stuff like that. And it works fast and it's easy to use. And it's called Molvad and they accept Monero. You send Monero there and about 15 minutes later, your account's active and you got VPN access. And that's a great first step because that's something everybody needs. You don't have to go make a big investment into cryptocurrency and you're helping advance competition on the dollar, which is ultimately what we want. We want competition to the, we want, or capitalists, we want competition in everything. And the dollar needs competition. And we have Bitcoin and Monero and Pirate Chain to do that. So if you really believe in wanting to escape the dollar and that digital currencies might be that future, then take a little time out of your day. Take the extra step to buy something in crypto. Go Google stores that accept Bitcoin or uh, uh, meet people in person. There's people in my local farmer's market that sell stuff in Bitcoin. I didn't even need anything they sold. And I just bought some anyways because they're selling it in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I... So I'm doing that not because it's the best, most convenient way, but because I want Bitcoin to be the best, most efficient way in the future, because it's not right now because of the volatility. Okay. So JC also wants to know if you've been on Rollo and Slappy. 
No, right. I'm not familiar Me with neither. those. Oh, Rollo, is that a show? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, Rollo and Slappy Show. Yeah. No, I haven't. Okay. I wouldn't mind going on. I enjoy yeah. doing this. It's fun, right? Do you have a little more time? Because I did want to, there's a few more things I wanted to just. Yeah, go. have as much time as you need. Okay, I don't right. have plans Thank tonight. You. Okay, so I do want to do some comments here, and then I want to get to some, get back to some SVB stuff that I had thought of ahead of time. I wanted to make sure that we got in. All right, so uh, Jody says, I live in Australia, and people I know who have crypto have received a letter from the tax department that they know they are dabbling in crypto. So, I mean, the, the government's definitely alerted to it. Okay, let's see what else we've got here. So Jody oh, is- yes, they, uh, yeah, not the only the exchanges, one. The exchanges give you information. Sorry, I was just coughing. Yeah, sorry. And the to... exchanges give your information to tax collectors when they ask for it. So Stella is also from Australia. So we have two people down under listening. What the heck time is it? It's starting to get late? Early? I don't know. It's hard with Australia because of the date Yeah, line. I think it's early over there. Um. All right, no questions. Uh... <laughs> all right, so- I can't, I can't, I got too behind on the comments. All right, so I wanted to say a few things just to go back to the SVB. One of of the parallels, so I noticed that obviously I think things like this, especially when you're dealing with deep state actors, when the the CEO was a, a Fed chair, Fed board member in San Francisco, and he's this stupid, like, I don't buy that. This seems like a setup. And there are other parallels. I also thought that about FTX. And there are other parallels, including that that what's being highlighted here is poor risk management, which, of course, is a, is a cry for regulatory scrutiny, which isn't even valid. Like, the, they're saying, oh, this is Trump era. Uh, actually, let's get to that. So there are some agenda items at play here. And the articles that I've seen are usually... Tucker Carlson clearly delineates the narrative, the counter narrative, like the narrative on the right. So I should yeah. probably start listening to him because there's so much information about the the Overton window of the reaction, like how much you're allowed to, you know, where, where the limits are of the reaction. So because a lot of people like Tucker, but I, you know, his father is such a propagandist. Clearly, he's there for propaganda purpose. But so what? So there's. So I know there is some like anti, I've seen articles saying like anti-ESG, anti-DEI, like the environmental governance social thing and all of that, like that some of those factors come into play here. I know that. And then that's um, that's the kind of reaction or the right stuff. But the the left stuff, people are saying, press on the left is saying that this is a function of Trump era deregulation. However, I also saw a really good article at, I think it's supplyanddemand.com. He tweeted it at me, and I retweeted it if you go to at Monica Perez show, about how there is absolutely no specifics whatsoever of the something like 30,000 little rules and nuances that emerged from Dodd-Frank that would have changed what happened at SVB. Like these accusations that it's Trump era deregulation are not founded. But that's an agenda item. Like these are all talking points, agenda items that I think are being served. I just wanted to throw them out there. I think you hit it right out of the gate. This is to move money into the bigger banks. And I would say that if you move the money into the bigger banks, if you are trying to re restructure the financial system, it's much easier if it's only possible if you have a lot of concentration and total control where all the money is. So it's, I think that that seems like a very obvious agenda item here. And it's not, it's, it's scaring people into doing that. So it's scaring people into moving their money. I just read an article, put in the show notes, like B of A just got 15 billion new investment, you know, new deposits because of this. I mean, who knows, right? With the numbers. However, they're not only doing, scaring people into it, but they're also trying to justify having tiered regulation. So having these smaller banks with fewer resources being required to live up to the same standards or even more stringent standards than the super, super big guys. And that in itself would be such a disadvantage that unless these guys are making super profits, which is unlikely, they're really not going to be able to live up to those regulatory standards and they'll just they'll just go away. Uh, so those are some agenda items. And then I think I covered a lot of the fishy stuff, very stupid risks. Sequoia Capital's name popped up again. Uh, can I say something about yeah. 
the deregulation. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. the big deregulation they're quoting is that during Trump's presidency, which who knows if Trump even had anything to do with this, I believe it's the Fed that oversees this, but they removed the deposit or the reserve it's, limit yes. for, oh, but not for everybody, only for the regional banks. And the person lobbying for that, a big player lobbying for that was, I think he was a CFO of, uh, of uh, SBV, who was also the CEO of Lehman Brothers right before they collapsed. What? I missed that. Oh, my God. Let me look up his name. His last name. Everybody's been making jokes because his last name is Gentile. Oh, is it? Or Uh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Really? Because I have everybody listed here. I have Becker, Dunbar, Deschanel, Myopolis. Um, Um, Oh, oh. Okay. So hold on. Uh, but it, I wonder if he yeah, joined. Yeah, chief administrative yeah. officer was yeah. CFO of Lehman Brothers. Okay, so is this chief administrative officer? Is he? Did he newly join SVB? Because sometimes they'll sure. slide somebody in there. Well, we can look it up. Um, I'll look it up in a second. But sometimes they'll slide somebody. Well, I don't think it'd be there. that recently because they said he was the what he was a big player lobbying for that uh, yes. deregulation. I, so I think he was around when that deregulation happened a few years ago. It's really interesting. They only did that to the regional banks. And then, you know, banks like SVB obviously uh, lowered their reserves. And then other to compete, other banks follow suit, you know, other regional banks follow yeah. suit. And so it kind of set them all up or let them set themselves up for, yes. uh, you know, bank runs yes. at those first sign of interest rate hikes. And then um, I did also notice when I just clicked through on the Sequoia Capital thing, because that caught my interest, I saw one guy there, Roloff Bota who's a South African guy, I think like the exact same age as Elon Musk, who invested with Elon Musk or he's in on in on it with a PayPal or whatever. And and there's literally a line. I don't even know why they bothered including it saying, oh, he decided, you know, he, he a mutual acquaintance introduced him to Elon Musk. And I'm thinking, I mean, that how weird is that, that these two guys the same age basically headed in the same direction from South Africa would have to be introduced by a mutual acquaintance in the U.S. I just feel like Elon Musk is such a creative right. person, and I wonder if this guy is also. Like, it just seems just a little too deep state. But Silicon Valley is, I think, quite deep state. Yeah, they yeah they have all their roots. But Whitney Webb goes into that, really. Oh, you know, yes. Getting back to Google and DARPA and stuff. Yeah, they yes, are. Yes, yes. <laughs> they are DARPA, basically. Yeah, Corbett you know? did that in the beginning. Yeah, like it was just oh, yeah. an outgrowth of Silicon Valley. Very well done. It's I don't know how these guys get that. I don't know what how they do their research. I find it very difficult to get some of that super deep research. Do you do you have any tricks on super deep research? No, not really. I'm actually trying to get better at it myself. Yeah. So I think the same thing. Like, where the hell does Whitney Webb dig all this stuff up? I know. And Corbett's you know? pretty good, too, but not like her. Yeah. And she does say sometimes that she has sources. So I don't know what that means. Like, I don't yeah. know who's talking to her that or how she knows point. them. But, I mean, that's something different. So, uh, also, I wanted to just make a point, which I might have made. I hope I'm not repeating myself. They talk about a lot about regulations. There was and a quote from Robert Reich who is just so bad on so many levels that he said that it's time to admit that banks that take in deposits are public institutions that shouldn't gamble with those deposits. The goal uh, of maximizing returns is fundamentally at odds with the goal of protecting depositors. How to fix this? Bring back Glass-Steagall. I actually think they should bring back Glass-Steagall. I mean, I don't know about bring back Glass-Steagall, but I actually think that fractional reserve banking is totally invalid and would never exist without FDIC. But because they put yeah, the reserve not to requirement. This yeah, they put the reserve requirement at zero. So you don't have to have any money in the, the bank doesn't have to have any deposits in order to make loans. None. It can just create money out of thin air, which is crazy. <laughs> and people say Glass Steagall should be like a cordoned off a cordoning off investment banks, but I think it's the commercial banks that need ring fence ring fencing. But in any case, or what the deposit banks but what no one seems to understand, and I think if you've probably come across this in Mises and stuff, is the difference between a time deposit and a demand deposit. So <laughs> in the beginning of banking, when you brought your money and you asked the, the banker to hold it for you, he would hold it for you in a box with your name on it and you would pay him to do that. 
Or um, and then I think if you were on a crusade and went to the Middle East, they, he would have a guy on the other side. And if you had a letter from that guy saying he has my hundred coins, the guy in the Middle East would give the hundred coins to you and he'd send a note back with a Knights Templar or whatever. But that was a demand deposit. And that should cost you money. You shouldn't earn interest on a demand deposit mm-hmm. when you're telling them to hold your money and you're going to come in and get it at any moment. Like that would be a run on the bank. And you would be you would be invalid as a as a bank if you couldn't answer every single demand. But there's another kind of deposit which we don't even think about. But like a CD, it's a time deposit where you say, "Okay, I'm giving you this money. I'm not going to ask it back in the next six months. And if I do, you get to take a little bit off the top, which is a sincere. It's a real deterrent. You're not going to have a run on the bank if you if people have to take that kind of a haircut. So a demand deposit, the bank pays you because it's taking that money and it's lending it out. And the longer you let it keep that money, the longer it can make a loan and the more money it's going to make. So that is a sound banking. You don't really need this other stuff. You just need people even just to understand that. And you wouldn't even need FDIC then. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't need it at all because bank banks would advertise their products. You know, you could have accounts that are split. You know, half of it's uh, available on demand, other half, you know, you get promised in the future, and people could do their own research and get clear uh, answers from the bank on where their money is going, rather than just being deposited under the impression that you could pull it out anytime you want because you can't, and it's actually in the terms of service if you read it that you can't pull it out anytime that you're giving the bank your money, and. So it's really not necessary. But yeah, people would have to pay for banking, which you should pay for banking. There's a reason you're not paying for banking because you're the product. They're taking advantage of you. Just like anything you don't pay for, nothing's free. And if you think about it, people getting like less than 1% on their savings account for like the most, for a long time now. If What's 1% on somebody who's got $50,000 in the bank, you know, $500? I'd much rather, yeah. if I have $50,000 in the bank, I'd rather pay $500 a year just to make it sure it's secure and that it's there when I need it, rather than get $500 a year and, you know, hopefully there's no bank run. But they don't let, you know, banks, banks compete with these different products. Because they could have complete, they could have lots of fractional reserve banks. They just got to be uh, honest about it and compete against the ones who are not, you know? Yes, I totally and agree. They could still, and they wouldn't really call it a bank, you know, they call it investment arm or something, you know? Yes. Investment firm. The guarantees are the moral hazard. The guarantees, yeah. you just keep it. So Byron's saying CD early withdrawals essentially don't exist when we are at the lows in interest rates because the penalty is usually a portion of the interest owed. I'm not following, yeah, but yeah. I'll have to mull that over. Byron starts at a, a higher well, um, <laughs> level. Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, let me reread it. Don't exist when we are at the lowest in interest rates because of... Oh, okay. He's just saying that you'll get a penalty if you close out your CD, if you withdraw your CD earlier, but you're in the interest rate is so low, it won't cover that penalty. So you're oh, just be I see what you're saying. We'll cover right, right, right. Early is just yeah. six months, then it's not much of a deterrent. Um, yeah. So you don't. That's and those why perverse incentives. Yeah. It's hard to. We uh, really want to emphasize like how significant those incentives, like FDIC, are, and how they make these people make these banks create bubbles that eventually pop and affect everybody. And how it makes so an individual bank who's doing sketchy things and making stupid investments, everybody holds dollars in the entire world or uses dollars gets to bail that bank off the hook. And so it just make make it makes their risk ceiling go so much higher just by having it. It does not bring it down. A lot of people argue that it brings the risk ceiling down. It does absolutely does not. It shoots it sky high. And right. That's what- right. Absolutely. So Byron's saying if the rate on a CD is less than one percent, which it was. And early withdrawal penalty is six months, and it's not much of a deterrent. Yes, and I would also say that I never even bothered opening a CD when interest rates were so low because it wasn't worth the yeah, time to go that extra or any kind of penalty. Now, they could give you a penalty where where it, it gets you into negative interest rate territory because then you're you're converting it to a time to a demand deposit, which should have negative interest rates so people are like you can't have negative interest rates you absolutely can if you're asking them to hold the money for you and not lend it out or to hold 50 like you were saying half and half that is also possible okay so i wanted to ask you if um oh yeah this says that corbett's done actual episodes on the fundamentals of researching and i and i will look into that i do i think i know the fundamentals and i'm just wondering like how they break through those barriers to get to stuff that isn't 
um, that is is behind those walls. Like I remember February 14th, 2018, the internet basically shut down and I could no longer do my research for my show. I was going to do the Parkland thing and I just couldn't do it. It was completely shut. Like it wasn't shut down, but it was, I, I mean, it was just completely censored overnight. Like there was absolutely yeah. no crowdsourcing on the internet anymore. And I just wonder how these guys get through that. But JC, thank you. And if you know what, you know where to reach me, Monica Perez show at gmail.com. If you can find one of those episodes, I would really like it and I'll listen to it. And hopefully it'll help me break through that barrier. But Daniel, I want to know, sounds like your house is, is experiencing activity, which I love to hear, and I'm not going to interfere with it. So tell me if there's anything that we left off that you want to tell people. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you could hear that. Oh, like that's totally fine. Family. I love it. There's, it's life, There's man. always family coming in and it's out It's great. Here. That's fantastic. Normally, my dogs are barking by now, so I, I usually yeah. can't do more than 90 minutes. So, Gad, so what, is there anything that you think we left off? Is there anything we should watch out for? I know Byron was like, wait, like, I and I've heard this from other people too. Credit Suisse looks like it's kind of, I don't know. Like, do you think there's going to be, is this the beginning of like the market was way down today? Like, do you think that they're, they, big T, they, whoever's behind this, because I totally think it's like, you know, the guy who, the Fed guy, the guy from the Fed uh, of San Francisco is, is the spearhead here on this catastrophe. Are they, are they, engineering manufacturing a real crisis and byron i'd like your opinion too but yeah daniel go i can't help but feel i mean it does feel like this is a cry like this is the beginning of a crisis but i guess you never really know a lot of things have seemed like a crisis over the last few years though and like man when they shut down the markets during COVID, like i thought everything was done yeah and holy cow went on the strongest bull run i've ever seen in my life everything just shot up it was insane and I'm like, what is happening? Nobody. But I mean, then looking back, it's like, oh, of course, it's obvious because the majority of our demand, the majority of our growth is fueled by cheap money. And they just print created more cheap money than they ever had before. Yeah. So then looking back, it's like, duh, of course, the market's going to shoot. Straight I know up my investment. I had it. We just like went in the black. We're always in the red, always in the red. We just went in the black <laughs> and like the entire world's falling apart. And I was like, what the hell? And I knew that COVID thing was going to be 18 months like people didn't. But I had seen that eventual one stuff. And the investment guy said, oh, the market's going to go bananas. Like, look at how much money the Fed's putting in. And I was, I just couldn't get my mind around it. Me. And I like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of basic relationship I feel like I should understand as somebody who reads the Mises yeah. stuff too. Um, so Byron points out, and this is a good point. What should be the case is that deposits that are uh, above the FDIC minimum are unsecured. Then that is just an unsecured loan to the bank and the interest rate should be greater than or equal to what the bank is paying on debentures, which is true because you're just taking the risk of the bank. And I mean, probably greater, the interest rates probably be greater because you're going to probably be behind their big creditors. So anyway, uh, okay, so you you, you do, uh, yeah, I'm a little nervous about this. I'm a little nervous, I gotta say. I mean, just because I just bought right, a house yeah, and I, I feel like I've opted into whatever and if the bottom falls out, that was- My suck. sister just closed on her. My sister just closed on hers today, too. Yeah, because I just feel but. like I took a loan out, obviously. So the loan's in real dollars, and what's the house going to be worth? You know what I mean? Like, that's when I yeah. start thinking, like, I want inflation. So Byron says they're either manufacturing a crisis or they are using a naturally occurring crisis as an excuse to exert more control. I would say they're, I would, I would say they are manufacturing a crisis for sure. And maybe they are precipitating a crisis that they've been manufacturing for a while. I think that's really the thing. I don't think anyone's surprised when there's fallout from interest rates rising that they've been saying we're going to rise and have been raising for a year or so. You know, I just like that's that's them planting the yeah. seeds and the fact that they are acting like it's a surprise. You know, that's a little bit fishy. Stella agrees with Byron. Um, okay, Daniel, what else? What else you got? Um, well, in closing, I guess I just want to point out a lot of people are saying like this is the most bullish thing in the world for Bitcoin. I don't like commenting on price or speculation of any crypto asset. I just want to remind people that, you know, it's, it's like these stable coins do lose their banking. I think that's where all the crypto volume is coming from. That has to, you know, that has to have an effect on the crypto industry. And what I would look out for is I'm interested to see if there is bank runs, a uh, broader, broader bank contagion, and we see bank runs on lots of banks. 
I, w- I would be more interested if these stable coins did not collapse during that. Because, like, they're really just the same as banks. They're all just buying, you know, these bonds and stuff like that. And that's where their value comes from. So I think it will speak volumes is if, if the banks collapse, but the stable coins make it. And we don't see the balance sheets of the state. Like, you don't see Tether's balance sheet, but you see circles. Is that correct? You see circles. Yeah, circles more open about theirs. But you but don't tethers, see Tether's. You, so. they, they, just, you, they, they tell you stuff. You can just go, well, they keep most of their banking partners uh, quiet. And then they say some of the assets they're uh, invested in, but they don't prove it in any way. They don't have audits or anything. They just say, oh, listen, this is what we have, but we're not telling you where we have it, basically. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm not going to let you go because I have to finish this with Byron. Byron says the whole interest rate rising thing is true, but the nature of the bonds SVB held have what is called negative convexity. So their price declines as a, at an increasing rate when rates rise. But why would they do that? And what about matching the duration of your liabilities with the duration of your assets? If you have all demand deposits, shouldn't you have short-term assets? I'm asking Byron this because he's my guru. Yeah, I might not be right in this, but I think it's caused by the fact that why would somebody buy your bonds today at a low interest rate when they could buy uh, new bonds with a higher interest rate right now? You know, why would you buy bonds at 1% when you buy it at 3%? I get it. But if you're talking about one-year treasuries or T-bills, whatever, then it's nothing, right? If if you have demand deposits and you're a private bank and not FDIC insured, you're going to have... You should you shouldn't be backing that up with ten years ten year bonds. You should be backing that up with shorter. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I just I feel like uh, Stella. Yeah. You know Stella from the Union of the Unknowns. Oh yeah, and Stella's from, great. I know. Yeah, her. propaganda reports, Zoom calls, and stuff. So Stella says, if anyone's going to help noobs like me understand this, it'll be Daniel. That is true. Uh, uh, JC said, uh, "Where? <laughs> what should I invest in, Byron?" Um, Negative convexity means duration changes materially, but that just seems like a weird thing to have in there. But anyway, I'll just... Uh, he just gave me something to Google. He obviously knows more about it than I do. Oh, he's a Google banger. that after we hang yeah. up. He's a, he's a banger. Okay, oh, that he's makes sense. big time. Like, he, he's uh, a, he sends know. me emails that really, I really? really make... I have to stop and, like, think. Sometimes I even have to get a pencil out and just be like... Okay, I remember how this relationship works and look up stuff like negative convexity. Uh, And he's probably cringing listening to me talk about banking. No, no way. But he (laughs) listens to me for crying out loud. He's definitely got to. (laughs) He can separate the pros from the the amateurs. So my actual experience notwithstanding, because it was just too long ago to be relevant. So anyway, okay, guys, super fun. Thank you so much for coming. It was great to have a little chat on the side. I love that. That's what I like to do the live stuff for. I kind of surprised Daniel with making it live, but I like to be able to chat with people. So I'm trying to get the live dives going at four o'clock on Wednesdays, four o'clock Pacific. But I'm I'm traveling so much over the next like month and going to see my mom and stuff that I don't know. So you have to just check. I just put out a newsletter on monicasdeepdives.com and it usually says when my lives, uh, live dives are and all that stuff and you can always get my updates there. But also, you can always listen to my stuff on Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. And Daniel, I do want to say that I'm looking forward to your writings. Like I didn't, um, I'm glad that you have an outlet and this is going to be based new world on Minds and Substack. So it's minds.com slash base new world and substack.com slash at base new world. And if you want to hang out, we chit chat on Twitter, anarchy underscore dot underscore gov. Anything else, Daniel? Uh, no, that's it. I do want to emphasize that my blog will not just be crypto stuff. I mean, I'd obviously, I will have crypto stuff in there, but I'm going to talk about other stuff. Like so what? If you guys are. Uh, I don't know. I like personal stuff, stuff I politics, anything you're interested in? No, yeah, poli- you know, political and the world, know, banking and crypto. Yeah, kind of stuff you cover. Not Probably cocktails, though. Karen just, oh, no, not cocktails. <laughs> no, that stuff. And I'm shooting for what, one a week. Yeah. And it's compl- I'm not going to charge for Substack or anything. It's all going to be free. I'm going to put up some once a week. So that's super Hopefully fantastic. More appearances on places like this. I don't say I think I'm an exceptionally great writer or presenter in these forums even, but I, the reason I want to get more involved is just because I don't see people talking about a lot of the things that I think need talked about. So 
I'm just gonna start posting on somewhere where I can link to people instead of arguing with them on Reddit. And stuff. Nice. Well, so you do make things very easy to understand, and I appreciate that. Anytime you put something up, if you if you tweet it at me, I'll retweet it and. Think about what you want to talk about for, you know, the next time we get together and let me know. And you're you're welcome to come back anytime you want. Yeah, I would love to. I had a lot of fun. So right. I'll come anytime. Excellent. I'm going to say goodbye to you now, Daniel. I'm going to say goodbye to all you all, all y'all out there. Thank you so much for coming and for listening. This is Monica Perez, and you have been listening to A Live Dive on Deep Dives.